Welcome listeners to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Today, we'll be continuing our series through the Marxist lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. Closing in on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which will be celebrated in July. For some odd reason, I've always been interested in China. 32 years ago, I read Jonathan Spencer's In Search of Modern China. I read a lot about Mao and the Long March in college. However, all this interest was tempered by my awareness of the brutal invasion of Tibet in 1951. The magic and spiritual mysteries of Tibet should never have been stifled by China. What they have subsequently done to suppress the Tibetans is unforgivable. In the past 10 years, I've written about 20 articles on China and its trade policies, foreign affairs, and my concerns about its economic outlook. What would Marx say today about China that concentrates 60% of its wealth in the top 1%? That's the world's biggest market for luxury goods. Gucci handbags and Rolex watches are everywhere. China's the third largest market for Bentleys. Shopping seems to be the national pastime, and the gambling casinos of Macau are flush with Chinese cash. China's stock markets are some of the largest, most active in the world. What is the difference between a socialist state and an authoritarian one? Workers from the countryside can't get legal papers to work in cities. No one could voice an opinion that runs counter to the official party line. As always, Professor Clyde Barrow is on hand to tell us what Marx might have to say about China since the revolution. Clyde, what's going on? Well, Jonathan, you've raised a lot of very important questions uh, with respect to China, and it, it sounds to me like what you're describing is what we would call a state capitalist society, as opposed to a socialist one, but we can get into a discussion of what those different terms mean. I think one of the places to start with respect to understanding China is Maoism and the origins of Marxist theory in China, which was sort of quite different than where we began. You know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, you know, Marx himself argued that a socialist revolution would occur and could only occur in the most advanced capitalist societies. And he was generally speaking of Western Europe and the United States. That got somewhat turned on its head in 1917 by Vladimir Lenin, who, as you'll recall, authored a very important book in the early 1900s that was called The Development of Capitalism in Russia. And in many respects, what Lenin did was argue that capitalism as an economic system had to be understood as a global system. And he described it as a chain with multiple links in which a place like Russia, even though it was primarily a rural agricultural society, nevertheless, its agriculture was integrated into capitalist markets. And it was an export society in which it was exporting agricultural goods to Western Europe. At that time, Russia was considered the breadbasket of Europe. Most of its wheat imports came from Russia. And what Lenin argued was that when you break a chain, you break it at its weakest link which means he reversed Marx on that point and said that socialist revolutions were actually more likely to occur in the least developed capitalist societies right. where the capitalist class was the weakest. <laughs> and it would be based, he argued, not just on the proletariat, but an alliance of the proletariat and the peasantry. Mao took that a step further, in which he argued that the peasantry would step forward as the leading element of a socialist revolution in places like China, which was almost a purely agricultural society, had a very underdeveloped small industrial economy in the cities. It was largely controlled by foreign interests. And therefore, you suggested essentially there was a very small proletariat. And so the revolution would begin in the countryside. And he developed what he called the theory of encirclement. 
which was that you would start in the weakest links within the agricultural society, which means the revolution begins in the periphery, in the most rural, remote provinces, and then slowly marches inward, building strength as it captures more territory and eventually captures the country. It took them about 20 years. And that's a theory that actually got applied later in the 50s and 60s to a global perspective. The theory of encirclement became a theory of world communist revolution. And that's why the United States was so concerned at the time about places like Vietnam. The fear was that as communists broke off these weak links on the periphery, gradually encircled the capitalist metropoles, that you'd have a world socialist revolution. And China really became the center of gravity and the reference point for many third world revolutionaries in the 50s and 60s, as opposed to Russia. How deep was Mao's scholarship regarding Marx and Lenin and Engels? Well, you know, keep in mind, Mao, like many Marxist revolutionaries, was well-educated. He was well-educated and well-read in Marx, well-read in Lenin. He was very familiar with debates in Marxist political theory. He was himself an intellectual. He wrote extensively and contributed some very significant pieces to the development of Marxist political theory. Certainly stands out as one of the leaders, not just because of his intellectual contributions, but as somebody who actually organized and fought in a Marxist revolution, a successful one in the sense that it captured power in China. Wow. Okay. So take us past his intellectual to... Yeah, well, you remember, they essentially took power at the end of World War II. They fought, of course, against the Japanese during World War II, although you'll recall that uh, the United States very much backed the so-called Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek, which was pro-Western in its political sympathies. They were eventually driven out to the island of Taiwan, which declared itself to be an independent country. And that's still a source of confrontation between the United States and China. But nevertheless, the Communist Party did take control of China in 1949, declared the People's Republic of China. And you'll notice that they didn't call it a Soviet Socialist Republic. They called it a People's Republic. And that was a conscious difference in name because of the difference in the social base for that revolution, which is primarily the peasantry and to some degree the lower middle class, small businesses. Now, what Mao did when he began to promote the economic development of China is he pursued a path that was completely contrary to that that was pursued a decade earlier by Joseph Stalin in Russia. You'll recall we talked earlier that there was a confrontation between Joseph Stalin and Nikolai Bukharin in the 1920s, where Bukharin argued that Russia should pursue the development of its agricultural economy and build on its strength. Stalin wanted to industrialize as quickly as possible, and he squeezed the peasantry very hard to generate the surpluses to invest in industrial development. Bukharin not only lost that debate, he lost his life (laughs) as a consequence of that challenge. But actually, in some ways, you could say that Mao learned from that. And he said, no, in China, we are going to go down that path of agricultural development first in what he called the Great Leap Forward. He said, before we can move forward with any kind of industrial development, the first thing we need to do is feed these people that we have. It's the most populous country in the world. We're starving to death. We can't feed our society. We need to develop our agricultural base. He also learned another lesson from Russia, which is that when he launched the Great Leap Forward, it was based primarily on agricultural cooperatives rather than state-owned collectives. 
because he had seen what had happened in Russia with the collectives where agricultural production was very low. The cooperatives were more productive, but he felt they were compatible with socialism because they were collectively owned by the peasantry themselves who would then have an incentive to be as productive as possible. They were taxed, but they had an incentive produced. And it took a couple of decades, but by the 1960s, for the Mm -hmm. first time, China could actually feed its own population with its own domestic agricultural production. And in that respect, you could say that 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 economic policy proved to be a success for the country. Wasn't the Great Famine, though, in 1960 that killed between 20 and 50 million Chinese starved? uh, There was indeed a famine, but it wasn't. I would say in contrast to what happened in Russia in the 1930s, where much of that famine was politically induced by poor policy, in the case of China, it was natural disasters as opposed to political policies that generated that famine. Wow. And they recovered. You know, they were able to feed their population and move forward. And so it really wasn't until you get to the 1960s, even well, really even to the 1970s after the Cultural Revolution and Mao's death, that a new generation of Communist Party leaders start thinking along a different line, which is, you know, the Great Leap Forward has been a success. We can now feed our population. We've stabilized that element of our society. We can now start to think about moving forward with industrial development, which heretofore, and really up until fairly recently, was largely based on the Soviet model of state-owned enterprises. Banks, manufacturing, mining, construction was all conducted 100% through state-owned enterprises. The thinking on that starts to change somewhere along the 1970s, 1980s, as Chinese communist intellectuals are influenced somewhat by market socialism, which had proven to be somewhat successful in Yugoslavia. But there were also theories about this emanating from Western Europe and Eastern Europe at the time. And what they began to recognize is that They couldn't continue to follow the old Stalinist policy of socialism in one country, that they had to have access to foreign capital in order to develop their industrial economy. And that meant that they were going to have to open themselves to some level of private investment and find ways to participate and integrate China into this emerging global economy. Now, step by step by step by step over the last few decades, You know, they started with a sort of 100% state-owned industrial development policy. They then opened up certain sectors to private investment in which you could take a minority position in a state-owned enterprise, meaning you could own up to 49% of that enterprise. What that did was give China access to foreign capital, particularly from the United States and Western Europe. It therefore gave them access to Western technology because they were now joint venture partners in these enterprises. And yet China still retained control over these enterprises because they had majority 100% interest. It also gave them access to global export markets. The result is that by, say, the 1990s, early 2000s, China was being described as the world's factory. Because so much of the manufacturing capacity of the world had moved out of Western Europe and the United States into China in order to take advantage, of course, of low labor costs and in some ways less stringent regulations, particularly with respect to environmental regulations. And then only recently has China opened itself up to say we're now going to allow 
a majority ownership stake by foreign enterprises in our country. Now, underneath that, keep in mind, there's this whole thriving private sector economy that's been going on for a long, long time, even in a communist society, such as, you know, the mom and pop shop, the retail store, the restaurant, little things like that have always been privately owned, continue to be privately owned. So there has always been a sort of thriving right. uh, private sector retail and service economy in China, and that's only gotten bigger with time. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, as a result of opening up manufacturing in particular to private ownership, what you have seen in China is the emergence not only of millionaires, but of billionaires on the scale that you would see in Western societies. And a wealth concentration, you know, equal to any of the Gini coefficient losers of the world. You know, I mean, a- this absolutely, is, absolutely. I mean, it's beyond uh, belief. And- you know, if we wanted to go down the road of having some deep theoretical discussion here, there are many people who would now argue that China is in no way a socialist society, but that it has sort of slowly introduced capitalism and sort of surreptitiously become an authoritarian capitalist society or what we would call a state capitalist society. Now, there are the defenders of China who would argue that, well, yes, it is an authoritarian society in terms of its politics but would argue that its economy is actually a market socialist economy because the state still retains a dominant position in terms of finance and banking. It still maintains very large positions in the manufacturing and construction economies. It has export controls, strong controls over its currency. So, you know, it gets into this whole question of, well, you know, what is socialism and how much capitalism can you have in a socialist society before it's no longer a socialist economy? Well, Clyde, Clyde. Uh, nobody really has a firm line they can draw here. And so we could debate this question probably endlessly. Right. Well, my question on this then is, yes, it's all those things that you just mentioned that it controls export, import, and it controls a lot of the corporations. But is that for the benefit of the people or the benefit of the party? Because I don't really see how the people are benefiting from all this control per se. I just see the party benefiting from it. And the party is not the majority of people. Politically, a great deal of this is designed to maintain the power of the Communist Party. And of course, many people would even argue now that Marxism is sort of a window dressing for the Communist Party in China. Thank you. That it's just another authoritarian party and uses Marxism to legitimate itself. There's a very thriving movement among young intellectuals in China right now who are actually become very interested in Western Marxism because they're trying to reinvigorate Marxist theory and are critical of the Chinese government saying that it has betrayed Marxism and betrayed socialism. And of course, not coincidentally, they tend to be suppressed by the Chinese government. Exactly. Yeah. So even in China, there are a lot of young intellectuals in the universities arguing that this is not what Mao intended, this is not what Marx talked about, this is not socialism at all. This is just another kind of authoritarian capitalist society that has been created. Now, On the other side of that, one will have to say China has successfully, I would say, solved its agricultural problem in terms of being able to feed the population. They do have universal health care, you know, similar to what you would find in England or Sweden. It's a socialized health care system. 
in the unequal access between the countryside and the city, most assuredly. And as you point out, enormous inequalities of wealth have emerged from this. And ironically, the Chinese would either avoid this question, just like corporate elites in the United States, or they'll make the same argument that the corporate elites here make is, well, yeah, I'm a billionaire, but everybody else is better off now, too, because of it, compared to what you would have had 100 years ago. So in some ways, adopting the very same arguments that Western capitalists would use to legitimate and justify their inequalities of wealth. How did China become so one man centric with Xi? I mean, how is it that he was able to basically become ruler for life, suppress all dissent? You know, the 300 person Politburo votes 300 to zero, whatever he has to say. There's not one dissenting vote. You see these pictures of the Politburo and the 300 people and you just know what the outcome is before you even think about it. There's no debate or discussion. So what about Marxism or Leninism and the Chinese mindset allowed for this yet one more time, you know, absolute dictatorial rule by one man? for life. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's keep in mind, as we know, going back to Tiananmen Square, that there is dissent and opposition within China. It tends to get suppressed quite brutally. You know, and, and I don't know all the intricacies of Xi's politics because I'm not a specialist on Chinese politics, but certainly I do know that bureaucracies, Chinese or otherwise, tend to generate people that are sort of competent and skilled at managing and manipulating the bureaucracy. You don't get to the top of the party bureaucracy without being a skilled bureaucrat or a bureaucrat politician. I would say, however, that underneath this, one of the things that will legitimate a person like Chi, or there are really two things that would legitimate him. One is he has successfully beat down opposition and maintained the monopoly of the Communist Party, which benefits, of course, everybody who is a member of the Communist Party. And the second would be that he has delivered prosperity to the entirety of China. Now, there's still grinding poverty, particularly in the countryside. But one could legitimately argue that as a whole, the people are better off now than they say were 20 or 30 years ago. And certainly you've seen that more than anywhere in the cities where you have not just billionaires, but a very thriving consumer oriented middle class as well. And so if you view the legitimacy of modern states as dependent on their ability to deliver the goods, you know, they have done that for a very large proportion of Chinese society. Agreed. Okay, take us to foreign policy now. I know you wanted to discuss and talk about the footprint that China is now projecting all over the world. What footprint and why? Why would they project a non-Marxist footprint? Because nobody thinks they're really Marxist anymore. So it's clearly a different kind of economy. And they're developing relationships that are based you know, completely economically, not on any ideological point of view. Why do they want to do this now? What's their goal? Well, let's start with a little bit background. I mean, their goal, obviously, like any state, is to preserve itself. And it may be hard for us to imagine a country of that size feeling threatened. But remember, China has a long history of being sort of invaded and taken advantage of by the sort of Western powers, which would include Japan today. So they have a lot of consternation and worries about their position in the world with respect to the other major powers, whether it be uh, Russia, Japan, uh, the United States, or, or Western Europe. Now, let's just say that they are now the second largest economy in the world. 
uh, nearly a $15 trillion gross domestic product, albeit one uh, distributed over a population nearly five times that of the United States. Yeah. But the expectation is that at their current rates of growth compared to the U.S., they will overtake the United States as the world's largest economy sometime in, by the end of the next decade. Oh, sure. In the, in the 30s. They also have a population of one and a half billion people compared to 320 something million in the United States. They have a military of 2.1 million, which is double the size of the United States. They're not considered a top flight military in terms of technological capabilities, particularly in terms of air and naval power, but it's a formidable army, the People's Liberation Army. So what are they trying to do? Well, one of the things they are doing is presenting themselves to the world now as an alternative to U.S.-style free market laissez-faire capitalism. And they're using the same arguments that Stalin used to use with respect to the Soviet Union in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is, look at us. Our economy is growing at twice to three times the rate of the United States. We're delivering universal health care to our population. We've taken an illiterate peasantry and given them universal public education. We have free higher education, controlled by the state, but we have it. And that's a selling point to much of the rest of the world. And by the way, they don't call themselves an authoritarian state. They call themselves a consultative democracy. And that is a concept that is caught on in, in many African societies. And what they mean by that is, well, yeah, we don't have sort of these Western style elections, but the party is everywhere and the party listens and mm -hmm. we have vigorous debates within the party and slowly but surely popular concerns do trickle up through the party apparatus. We do concert consult with local officials. There is a lot of local autonomy in China. The cities and the provincial governments have a great deal of authority and power, much like the states do in the United States. So while it's an authoritarian system, there's a certain degree of federalism in China as well. So they're selling that as what they call consultative democracy, as both a political and an economic alternative to the United States. Now, how are they selling that? Well, one of the things they've been doing for a very long time is investing very heavily in large infrastructure projects in Africa to help stimulate economic growth in the African nations, which, as you know, have largely been neglected by the West. You know, we'll show up with bags of wheat when there's a famine. We may send in troops when there's a genocide, but sometimes we don't. And so they've been cultivating a lot of political support, at least, in places like Africa. You know, they've also initiated the so-called Silk Road project, yep. uh, sort of hearkening back to the Middle Ages when China was the center of global trade, where they're building highways and railways, high-speed internet, Clyde, Clyde, uh, and all the kind of infrastructure you need to facilitate trade to Central Asia, to the Middle East, even into Western Europe, to try and create this sort of orbit of nations and economies that are sort of increasingly tied to China. And then sort of the last piece of this is Donald Trump gave them a gift when he withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations because he just opened the door for China in East Asia to sort of become the dominant power in East Asia. 
And they very clearly stated, you know, whether it's true or not, they have no global ambitions, but they do claim East Asia as their sphere of influence, and they yeah. will aggressively yeah. protect it. Well, as we claim the Monroe Doctrine, it's not unusual for an assertive power to decide exactly. that its neighborhood was going to be there. Do you know that last week Goldman Sachs announced that they were going to form a majority partnership with Chinese investment firms where they were actually going to invest Chinese state pension funds on a global basis? I mean, that announcement that Goldman Sachs, the arch devil of capitalism, responsible by many for, you know, the global financial crises and what they did with the Malaysian pension funds and all the other scandals that they've been involved in, which are just too numerous to even begin to mention, they've now formed a partnership with the Chinese government. Now, how does China explain that to the world? Yeah, that's a good one. And I hadn't heard that. That's a very significant development because one of the last, you could say, truly socialistic vestiges of the Chinese economy was the state's control of the financial sector, of the banking and investment sector and its regulation of the stock markets, allowing a privately owned Western firm in the financial sector is a very significant departure in terms of we could call it their transition to capitalism. Let's also not forget that despite anything good you could say about China. The government is incredibly corrupt. There is a lot of graft. There's a lot of bribery. I have no doubt that there were some very significant payoffs that went into that deal. And there will probably be more billionaires who will come out of it. That's probably really accurate. Evidently, the Chinese were concerned that because they've suppressed their investment policy, basically to residential real estate and state-owned enterprises. They were very concerned that this was a bubble. And as they grew, they would just put more and more money into apartments and prices of real estate would go up, making it even more unaffordable. So they were looking to Goldman and other Western companies have announced partnerships with them to invest this globally so that they weren't limited to that. It just seems like every day they're they're walking away from any Marxist or any you know socialist roots and becoming more and more just an authoritative state, as you said. Where does it end? Where does it come to a, a head with Xi, with success, with failure? Does this kind of government go on forever, or does it create its own, as Marx said about capitalism, grave diggers? Yeah. Are they well, digging their own grave? There's probably at least three possibilities here. One is that as they go further and further down the road of capitalism, it just becomes another authoritarian capitalist state, how long it can go on? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. One, you did mention the speculation of a real estate bubble in China. And while you know the records and the numbers are not transparent to most of us in the West, there is a growing concern that there is a financial real estate bubble that at some point is going to pop in China, much like we saw Japan. elsewhere in the world in 2008. Or Japan. Yeah, China largely managed to walk away from that. But if that happens, that's going to sort of take the veneer off the Chinese miracle. And then, of course, there's always the underlying discontent that there's a growing educated middle class in China. They've managed to distract that middle class with consumerism. And by the way, that's their future development policy is more consumerism. You know, and maybe you can keep this growing middle class content. By Gucci just with Gucci more and more iPhones yeah. and Gucci bags. But there is political opposition, and you just never know what's going to trigger that to boil over, and you end up with a democratic revolution in China as opposed to a socialist revolution. Boy, are they working hard to suppress that. So 
to wrap up, if Marx woke up today and took a look at China, what would he say? In a couple of words, what would he say? Would he believe it? Would he disbelieve it? Would he be in a state of shock? Or would he say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not, nothing to do with what I had in mind. You know, I think he would have a mixed reaction to it. I think he would probably think there are a lot of good things that have been done with the Chinese economy. I think he would find an authoritarian state superimposed on that abhorrent. Thank you. And he would say it's not really socialism until you have democracy. Wow. We will end with that optimistic note. Thank you so much. As always, Professor Barrow, very interesting conversation. Thank you. You're welcome. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.